And welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today by senior TechCrunch reporter on the early stage beat. It is Natasha Moscarenas. Hello. How are you? I am so good, guys. I'm going to Vegas this weekend for the first time ever. So first yeah, I'm time? like, I'm jittery with excitement and I have liquid IV, pina colada flavored liquid IV. <laughs> That's on theme. Where are you staying? Um, I'm not going to share that because I don't want people to know, but I'll tell you guys after the show records. Okay. Well, the correct answer is the Cosmopolitan. Just saying. Sure. Marianne, two things. One, I want to announce that you have an awesome new microphone that we're very excited about. And also two, where is your favorite place to stay in Vegas? I haven't been to Vegas in like... I don't know, 10 years. So I can't answer that, Alex. I haven't been since I quit drinking for obvious reasons, but let me tell you, I love me some Vegas. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we're not going to talk about roulette strategies and the best poker rooms that have the best table side drink service. Instead, we're going to talk about technology and startups. Ooh. And that means this week on Equity, we're talking GPT's potential trademark. What is Anza and how is it not Asana? Then First Republic and should we be hitting that big old panic button? Then themes of the week, we're going to talk about fintech layoffs, including some venture capital movers and shakers that are moving and shaking their way out the door, then earnings, my favorite thing, and then we'll wrap up with how to make coffee attractive to VCs. And not as a beverage, we mean as an investment. But first, Natasha, apparently OpenAI is all like, oh, IP, it's good. We should have some. That is might be the exact way I was going to describe this latest news item, which is that ChatGPT has applied for a trademark at the United States Patent and Trademark Office for, quote, GPT, which, you know, stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. And, and, you know, and just last month, it petitioned to the USPTO to speed up the process, which was recently, you know, that petition was denied. So now it's back in the normal queue. But, you know, it gives us a little bit of a snapshot into how OpenAI is feeling about all the GPT tools out there, everything from San Francisco GPT to medical GPT. I mean, I'm sure there's more inappropriate and fun ones, but those are the two that I've that I've seen. And it's kind of interesting to see OpenAI start to take notice. I'm not surprised that it's taking this sort of action, but I, I do think we, we should know that the reason that that petition was dismissed last week was supposedly because OpenAI's attorneys didn't pay some associated fee as well as they didn't provide as quotes appropriate documentary evidence supporting the justification of special action which i'm not sure what that means but like i think we can all agree that gpt is now is just like i mean automatically associated with open ai at this point and anybody else trying to use it is just going to look kind of lame interesting i don't know if i agree with that entirely i'm trying to figure out why that doesn't feel right to me i think chat gpt to me is the brand name more so than the the kind right. of concluding right. acronym yes right and I don't want to be rude to our friendly local billionaires who are building this thing, but given how many people have done noun plus GPT, I almost feel like the genie's out of the bottle. Like, I wonder if you can put this back. The toothpaste just left the tube. Yeah, I think chat GPT is what I what I was really referring to. So thanks for clarifying that. I think the timing is definitely interesting for why they are doing it now. I agree that it's kind of been a minute now. I think the lawyer in the piece that Connie wrote about this trademark situation said something along the lines of like, or suggested that 
that OpenAI was a little bit surprised by its own success around ChatGPT. And I think we all were in some way. Maybe you weren't. And for that, you get a pat on the back. But I would be lying to say that, you know, I'm not more interested in a San Francisco GPT because of ChatGPT. And maybe that's the argument there on OpenAI's front. Like it's helping other companies get users by taking a name that they are associating with themselves is their argument. The other argument is this is just a way to describe technology. It's as simple as XYZ. We're not going to see someone try and trademark XYZ. Yeah. Like also RAM, which is, you know, random access memory, I think. And ROM is read only memory. Those are probably wrong. They're close enough. <laughs> Anyways, these are just acronyms that describe a thing. Yeah. And if GPT stands for, what was it again? Generative pre-trained transformer. That's what I know. <laughs> that rolls off the tongue. Uh, to me, it's describing a technological process that I don't think that they were the first to do. Or no, just- apparently Google first unveiled this quote unquote neural network architecture back in 2017. So that could be a stumbling block for open AI. What do we call that in the patent world? Prior art. I don't know if that applies in the world of trademarks, but to me, uh, I get why they're doing it, but it does strike me as slightly more commercially focused than I think OpenAI has tried to cast itself. They're trying to be this like quasi nonprofit, not taking a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. And so to me, this is kind of antithetical to the punk rock ethos. This feels very Microsoft, you know? The elbows are coming out and that's kind of fun to see. Yeah, oh, happen. Oh, oh. Oh, so speaking of elbows coming out, this is totally off topic, but I don't care. I want to say it on the show anyways. An awesome, cool, hardcore band called Gel uh, <laughs> that I've been tracking for a long known. time <laughs> is, is coming to Providence this weekend. And I'm going to try to catch one of the shows. And the question is, is Alex too old to mosh and get elbowed in the face? We will find out. Please the gel be show. careful. Please be careful. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't moshed in a long time. I just got a visual, a visual of you moshing. And that just made me laugh, like made me happy. I used to crowd surf. I used to be fun and less breakable. Anyways, Elbow's coming out. Let's move along to the world of fintech. Marianne, you have a story about a company that I am shocked is not using the blockchain. Well, you know, this company caught my eye because it's rare that I see technology that is something that I haven't seen before. And the startup is called ANSA. I believe it's ANSA, not ANSA. What they're doing is they're building a technology, what they call like a closed loop wallet basically so that merchants can create virtual wallets for their customers. Now, what does that mean? Okay, if you have the Starbucks app, you know that you can preload it with a certain number, like $25, $30. And then each time you go to Starbucks, you show them the app, they scan it, they take their money out, right? Automatic, it's very convenient, okay? What we don't think about is like for smaller coffee shops, for example, each time you use your credit card, not only are they paying interchange fees, they have to pay other fees, okay? So each time, even if you're just buying a $4 cup of coffee, they're gonna have to pay a fee on it. So if you have a virtual wallet like Starbucks, you can save money on fees because they're transacting less. They're loading their virtual wallets and then they're having several smaller transactions based on that loading of the wallet. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So this is fascinating to me. So actually, um, also really interesting about this company is how the two co-founders met. Sophia Goldberg is a former product manager at Adyen, and JT Cho is an ex-software engineer at a firm. They were introduced by Christina, an investor at Bain Capital Ventures, because Sophia was like, I have this great idea, but I need a technical co-founder. And so... 
Christina was like, I've got the guy for you. She introduced her to JT. They came up with the idea for this. They were two payments nerds, as they call themselves, and got to work right away. They started the company last year. They raised $5.4 million in a round led by Bank Capital Ventures. A bunch of angels put money into it, including Plaid co-founder and CEO, Zach Parrott. And 75% of their investors were women. So a, a lot of really cool things to unpack here. So at first, when I read this, I was like, this is dumb because I already have the Duncan app on my phone. Why, why would this exist? But then I was thinking back to our recent trip to Boston and I went to a cafe coffee place called Tate with Natasha. And I was just thinking about this. I heard while I was there that it's a recently launched chain founded by a woman and they have like, I think six locations around. They could probably use this because then they don't have to have an in-house tech team. They can just use this and then I could have the, the Tate mobile wallet and then I could get Tate treats without having to run through all the transactions with my card. So if I was on a run, for example, I don't have to bring my wallet. I think that's great. I think it's great too. And their initial customers are coffee shops, quick service restaurants, but they do believe that this can be applied to enterprise customers as well at some point. So I think it's very, very interesting. I got a lot of chatter on Twitter about it. Like I said, it's been a while that I've come across a company that's doing something that felt really differentiated in the payment space. I could totally tell by reading the piece too that you felt that way, which is always super Aww. fun to see. Um, as someone who is like, has 262 stars on Starbucks and used my wallet this morning, I was, you know, so excited. I mean, for I think for forever, Sheil has called this out from Better Tomorrow Ventures a ton where he's like, Starbucks is like a bank that happens to serve coffee. It has such a big business and it's preload capital and it's so smart. I think, I mean, I'm such a loyalty person. I don't, I don't think this would be something I would do on vacation, but it would be something I would do every day in San Francisco. It's free for the user if you're going to buy food and coffee every day. And then the only other note I had was I love the backgrounds of the two founders because just on TC Live yesterday, I was talking to Chris Farmer from Signal Fire about the outsider advantage in consumer startups, but the insider advantage in enterprise companies. And this feels like an enterprise meets consumer company with the Aiden right. background of being enterprise, but the Affirm background being, you know how to build it, like something savvy and consumery. I just like love what they're each are bringing. It's not like a, I don't know, it's not a boring spin out. It's a very right. like, interesting one. It's a great point. And you brought up something else that I neglected to mention that part of this is also an effort to drive loyalty on the part of the customers to that merchant. So they're, they're going to offer like rewards or incentives like Starbucks offers rewards. You get to a certain point, you get like a certain amount of money off. So anyway, yes, lots of cool stuff. And Alex, you have something else to say too. I think. Oh, I have many more things to say about this. I think it's freaking great. So first of all, love to see a good example of a B2B to C company right? I always hear about that type of business model and I can never think of an example of one because my brain you know, doesn't work so well. But in this case, this company is going to sell to other companies who then use it with consumers. So it's kind of a good example of that. Two, I introduced this by saying blockchain because blockchain people are always like, look, it's our new wallet API. Look, you can have your tokens Ooh. on the chain. And here they're like, why don't you put your dollars on the app? And that makes so much more sense to me. And turns out you don't need a slow public database and proof of work to have a functional system of record. Anyways, finally, on the Natasha point from Shiel about Starbucks being a bank that happens to sell coffee, he's kidding, but only kind of, because now that interest rates are up, there's actual value to sitting on cash. Because now cash that you hold is like 4%. So my question is, who holds the cash at Anza? Is it the company that holds the cash for their customers and then they collect all the interest income? Or do the individual companies collect the money? 
That's a good question. I'm not sure. They do have a banking partner, but I'm not sure who's holding the cash. That is like a great note to end on, like a, a question mark to end. We love that. Well, speaking <laughs> of question marks, here's one for you. Is First Republic still going to be a bank on Monday? I know. Oof, gosh. Wow. Watching that stock tank is painful. Yeah. So if you have been watching, First Republic reported earnings earlier this week, and we'll get into a little bit about what it said there. But the stock price of the company has continued to drop until Thursday when it picked up around 10, 11% as of the time that we're recording this Thursday afternoon. So the bank is on a bit of a bounce. Those come in two forms based on fundamentals and then the famous dead cat bounce. We don't know what this is yet, but the bank has lost so much of its value that there's a lot of editorials out there kind of saying, hey, you know, this is going to be bad. This is going to be the next Silicon Valley bank. And so I, I just kind of wanted to get a vibe check from the crew here. Where do you guys see this going? I'll go first. I mean, SVB happened around six weeks ago. It's kind of shocking to see the difference in how people, you know, for obvious reasons, reacted to SVB versus First Republic. Like, it's kind of like we have the second crisis that's brewing. People are being more cautious. They don't want to do a bank run, but they all are starting to, you know, percolate through the DMs and signal to say like, hey, things are getting crazy again. Like, we are dealing with the crisis, but they're saying so in such a calm way that you're almost like, how stressed are we right now on a scale of one to 10? So that's where I'm at right now, where I'm just like trying to get a vibe check on how tough it is. And I think the biggest question on every founder and VC's mind I've spoken to this week has been, is the FDIC going to step in the way that they did for SVB? If they do, it will continue precedent. And if they don't, it will break precedent. And that both will be, I think, very important. Yeah. I have a couple of questions. First of all, as you wrote, Alex, the bank ended last year with $176.4 billion worth of deposits. By the end of the first quarter, it only had $104.5 billion in deposits. So what I'm not sure I understand is structurally, does, did First Republic have the same issues as Silicon Valley Bank? Or is this just some kind of spillover effect from what happened there? So as far as I can understand, the issue at Silicon Valley Bank went as follows, just to summarize for everybody, startups and VCs raised a lot of money. They kept it at Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank took those deposits, invested it in longer term US government debt at like 1% interest. Rates went up. The value of those bonds went down, creating unrealized losses that were later shown to be an issue. The bank tried to fix this and then everyone ran away. So is that happening here? I don't think so. I read its earnings report. I don't see that. The issue is slightly different. It's more like the second order effect of Silicon Valley Bank's financial mistakes that led to a crisis. In this case, a loss of confidence is seeing deposits removed. And that $104.5 billion number you mentioned is accurate with an asterisk, which is that $30 billion of those deposits came from other banks who essentially just parked money over there as a good job. Keep it up. Don't fail, please, because that's bad for us, the big banks. And so I think people are very scared. The one thing I haven't figured out about banking sentiment is when to panic, because the company in its earnings report said that, hey, deposits after the end of the quarter have only gone down by like a billion dollars. And that's because it's tax season. So they were trying to say, hey, look, the deposit flight is over. We're stable. We have a foundation of deposits. We're going to be OK. And then everyone tanked the stock by 50 percent. Yeah. So, OK, I, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to understand is like, is First Republic just a victim of the whole Silicon Valley bank disaster? You know what I'm saying? Like, because if so, that kind of sucks for that bank, if it didn't really do anything wrong. And all of a sudden, I mean, like its stock went down from $115 on March 8th to $16 at the end of trading yesterday, which I mean, ouch, 
Yeah. I mean, I think your question is probably the question everyone is asking at First Republic. And it's hard because it's both. There's no way to know like what percent was contagion, what percent was the way banking works. And that's the difficult part. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, just in terms of what I'm looking like, what I, I think we're all looking for in the future is like, how are VC firms and startups reacting to this beyond the normal fear, what's actually going to happen now that we know that the stock prices dropped dramatically. Yeah. I hate that we all had to relearn how to pronounce the word contagion. <laughs> it's never a good time when we're breaking out the, how do you pronounce that again? Is it contagion? No, it's contagion. <laughs> also, this reminds me of the Hobbit meme. You know, like we've already had one breakfast. What about second breakfast? But with banking crises, <laughs> I, I feel like Marianne, your question is a really good one because ask yourself this. If Silicon Valley Bank hadn't imploded in a supernova of pain across the startup and uh, technology world, would First Republic be where it is right now? No. Right. Because the deposits wouldn't have fled and they wouldn't be having this issue. So this does seem to be kind of <clears throat> Silicon Valley Bank's fault, which is if you're a First Republic and right. you were like, hey, we were conservative. We didn't have one sector be all of our bread and butter. And uh, they're sitting here still taking stick for it. Let's keep talking about bets not paying off and how that leads to implosions because Marianne, you had a important scoop this week, giving us kind of a window into how one VC firm is reacting to this downturn. Thank you, Natasha. And, and you're right. You framed it perfectly. It, it was a scoop, but not one that I'm like happy to have reported on. So Anthemus Group, fintech focused VC firm, laid off 20% of its staff earlier this year as part of a restructuring, as they described it. That's about 16 employees, which doesn't sound like a lot. But again, when we're talking about percentages of 28%, which is nearly one third of an entire firm, that is a lot. And it's unusual. We don't see this happening very often. Also, what kind of stood out about this is the caliber of the people that were apparently let go, including a former managing director, one of the early stage investors. And and by the way, I have to say this, this managing director in particular, I got emails from people who worked with him raving about how amazing he was. And they were concerned that he was part of this article because they were like, he was awesome. So we hope that this doesn't impact his current fundraising efforts for his new venture that he started. I just had to point that out because I do think it's important to know that just because someone was part of a, a layoff doesn't mean that they weren't good at their jobs. I mean, totally. If people don't know that by now, it's like you're missing out on talent, honestly, if you don't know that yeah. by now. Layoffs reflect poor corporate performance, not often individual performance of the people impacted by the layoffs. Right, so, right. Yeah. I just had to kind of point that out. Anyway, Anthemus is, um, they've had a, a lot of investments in fintechs over the years, including, let's see, Betterment, eToro, which is kind of interesting to me, which is doing pretty well. But it's also had a, a couple of stumbles, including having invested in Pipe which their CEO Shuffle last year raised some eyebrows and uh, Daylight, which is now the subject of a lawsuit by former employees. Yeah. So I want to go up one level from Anthemus and think about venture staffing in general, because a couple of months ago, there was a story, I forget where it was, about how a lot of people graduated business school and went into VC instead of iBanking. And they felt they were kind of sold the false bill of goods because they arrived and then everything slowed down. And now they're just out there like trying to find companies. They don't feel very special or very compensated. And my vibe is that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because VCs are raising less money. That impacts their fee base. They're doing fewer deals. That means less diligence and maybe less sourcing. I don't know. But if you're doing less work, you don't need as many people. 
especially if you have a lower fee base, you probably want to cut your overall corporate costs. So seeing yeah. people reduce their staff size, I, I think Anthemis is early. I don't think it's going to be a loan. Right. I think that was a question I saw on Twitter a lot. Like, is this an outlier event? Are we going to see more of it? My suspicion is there's more of it actually happening right now. We just don't necessarily know about it. So right. I don't think this is like an exceptional situation, honestly, which sadly, but we just maybe don't know about other cases at this time. I wonder if there's going to be quiet firing. So because if you're a partner at a venture capital fund, right, you're part of a collection of people who have, I think, usually roughly the same amount of carry in the fund. And if you have, like, say, three or four deals in that fund and they're all bad, let's use that word, you might not get invited back and you might be kind of quiet fired. Like you might not be part of the next fund, even though you're still on some boards. So I think we'll see some some departures or hear about some departures that aren't formally announced like this. I, I almost want to say, like, I'm kind of glad we got the numbers of staff and percentage of people because that feels like a rare bit of information. It really does. Alex, just to point out, though, this was not formally announced. They were not transparent. <laughs> I really got Marianne broke the story and made it be transparent. Ha! We'll turn you into a window. I, I wrote a story a while ago about how like a lot of VCs are just ghosts right now. Like They're not active. They're kind of just like disappearing into the abyss and not raising their next fund, which like you can kind of just do that and still call yourself a VC firm that's active because what is the accountability there? So I feel like, yeah, anyways, just another data point. Like I feel like it's low-key been a bubbling uptrend and more to come. I wonder how much of it is is, is fintech as well? Yeah, fintech is, you know, has, has been hit fairly hard with all the hype that surrounded the space in 2021. But on the point that you just made, though, Natasha, I will say that Anthemus says they publicly announced a few new investments this year, and they claim that they're actively fundraising, although they are not allowed to comment beyond that. But anyway, I agree. I do think fintech has been hit hard. So I wouldn't be surprised, again, if we're seeing other firms that are heavily focused on fintech kind of scaling back as well. Let's talk about earnings because my early stage perspective is that we are going to hear a lot about the downturn in this round of earnings. And Alex, I know you've been following it closely. What's been the vibe? Is it close to the private markets and how we're, I guess, our current conversation or is it a new conversation? Yeah, I think it's a continuation of a couple of themes we've seen among startups. And the big takeaway that I have thus far, as we've recorded this, I just want to say Amazon's earnings come out in two hours. So I have not seen Amazon's numbers. And so if they are wildly different from what I'm about to talk about, that's why I can't see the future. Uh, from what we've heard, though, from Alphabet, which is Google, Meta, which is Facebook, and Microsoft, which is Microsoft, growth is slow. We've seen single digit expansion on a year over year basis, but interesting growth in the cloud businesses. And then critically, a lot of talk about efficiency and AI. And so when I compare this overall package of numbers to startups, what are we hearing about from startups? Efficiency and AI. So it feels, Marianne, kind of like the same conversation, just with much bigger companies and trillion dollar market caps instead of billion dollar market caps. Yeah, for sure. I, I did think it was interesting that the single digit growth, which like if we'd seen that a couple of years ago, Whatever. Would not have, yeah, would not have been like so warmly received <laughs> overall. So like that to me is super interesting. What was it? Meta and Alphabet 3%, Microsoft 7 yeah, it's it's been it's been absolutely crazy. The thing about Al oh, sorry, Meta is that sure it grew three percent. You're you're all going like, oh, sad trombone, only three percent growth. That's pathetic. But the last two quarters it shrank. So like now it's it's back to growing. And I think people are pretty happy about that. And I think if I'm recalling the numbers correctly, their staff size is down a percent on a year over year basis. So they've done the layoffs. They have managed to return to growth, and investors are excited about that. But really, guys, AI. 
AI, 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 and they're not saying much. There was a great question about like AI searches on Google's earnings call and like unit economics and partnerships, and they hit them with several paragraphs of complete pablum. Those executives didn't say a thing in the response to that other than blah, 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 we're not going to tell you. <laughs> and I'm just like, they're so media trained. I really feel like we could just put like a sock puppet to ask analyst questions and then have them just not answer for 30 seconds. I mean, that we would learn about as much for sure. on a lot of these calls. <laughs> for sure. That is so true. It's so true. Like they say a whole bunch of nothing most of the time. Like Ru- Ruth Porat is awesome. And she tells us nothing. Like, come on, Ruth, drop some incremental knowledge on us. Literally anything. I'm grasping for straws here, but the fact that AI was even mentioned to me is kind of like showing your cards a little bit. I'm like, damn, thank you for talking about the biggest technology shift that everyone, you know, is clearly putting billions of dollars behind. Like, thank you for addressing that at least. But jokes aside, I mean, this is not what we heard when some of the companies beyond Meta were talking about the metaverse and crypto. Like this, you know, talking about AI and addressing it at least makes me feel like, it gives us something, some sort of signal. It's a big deal. Absolutely does. And the thing is, it's less aspirational AI stuff. So like in crypto, people often announce like, oh, Gucci is working with Polygon or I don't know, Billy Bob's working with an L2 or whatever. In this case, like Microsoft's like initial download in its earnings call was a series of product announcements from where they baked AI via the co-pilot branding into like many products, number of customers that have signed up, usage numbers. And they even said that a point of incremental Azure growth, which is their cloud service next quarter, it will come from these AI spend. So it's wow. showing up yeah. and it's not just talk. And we're now, I think, past the point where the technology is cool and it's being used and being put in everywhere. The question now, I think, for startups and big tech alike is how much do people really like to use it when it's not a fun thing you're messing around with, but it's part of your daily workflow trying to help you do more? That's a good question. All right. If we sound like we're flagging, it's just because we all need more coffee. And that brings us to our final little bit of news here, which is that somehow coffee and venture capital are trying this dance again. Who wants to tell us about Odeco? And then I will explain to us why Luck and Coffee was a fraud. I'm happy to talk about Odeco because it very much surprised me to see a late stage caffeine round happen in this world. Uh, Odeco, for people who didn't know, I didn't know them until this moment. They provide supply chain management and other op tools to independent coffee shops and cafes. So think software that helps manage inventory and better ways to order and just thinking about environmental footprint, all those things. They raised a 53 million Series D and that is you know adding into a total of raising 177 million dollars. Insane. I mean, a lot of also firms that you know of in the round, GGV Capital, Tiger Global, what? Amex, FJ Labs, KSV Global. I mean, wow to some of the heavyweights in venture being in Odeco. And, you know, it's a software play in a very brick and mortar D2C world. So, you know, I think it's a little bit hedged compared to Blank Street, which, you know, also closed around recently. I think it was yeah, twenty six point eight million. Tiger Global also participated in that one as what well. What is Tiger doing? What does Tiger know about coffee that we, us three, don't? Maybe they got banned from the Starbucks apps. So they have to go out and buy really expensive coffee. And this then they're way. gonna 
build Ansa into all these companies. Take oh, you over. stole it. You stole it. <laughs> I was going to say that. Damn it. Okay. Blank Street just closed a $26.8 million round. They've previously raised about a hundy, but unlike Odeco, which is doing supply chain management and kind of software stuff, Blank Street will make you coffee. And they have some services that allow you to have like unlimited pours for 12 bucks a month. But otherwise, it's not that much cheaper than other coffee. And I'm a little stuck on this one. $12 a week, by the way. Oh, $12 a week. Oh, that makes a lot more sense than $12 a month. Okay. It's not good. I don't love Blank Street. Yeah, but if you drink a lot of coffee, I guess you could, that would be a money savings. But I totally, totally see your point. I mean, I've, I feel like a supply chain management software in this space is definitely more compelling, in my opinion. Also to note that Odeco's valuation was 25% higher than its previous round, which I think Ah. was last, was that last year? I think it was just last year. So like an up round, which I wish we had the numbers, but anyway, would have to, would have to agree with you on that though. TLDR is like, there's a long history here. Like there are so many companies. My first experience with SF tech very much was around Cafe X, which I'm so glad made the script, but just like the, I think Crunchbase's office was next to a Cafe X or on the way. It was literally, if you walked out the door on Marcus Street and turned right, there was a Cafe X right there. Oh my God. Yeah. I remember very much seeing it like lose uh, traffic and being like, okay, that's the scoop I'm going to get. It's when it shuts down. But then I think Axios beat me (laughs) one year into my job. But yeah, anyways, there's so many different companies here. It's kind of interesting to see VC still be excited about it. I think we're both kind of, I think we're all similarly cynical or surprised, not cynical. Sur- surprised, I guess, is the way that I put it, because we saw Blue Bottle, which raised venture capital money. Crunchbase said over a hundred million, and it was majority acquired by Nestle for what was reported to be 500 million. So there is a history of some exits on the American side, on the Chinese side, Luck and Coffee, of course, talked about it on the show a bunch back in the day. It now has like more locations in China than Starbucks does. And then when it went public, it turned out there was a bunch of accounting fraud, which was a big issue. Anyways, I checked today, still public, still doing things. I read some of its earnings reports and that's a multi-billion dollar exit. So there is some history of this going well. I think Cafe X is struggling more because they had a lot of airport locations and then COVID hit and that was a struggle. So I don't know if Blank Street's going to succeed, but I'll tell you this. If there's any place I don't mind competition, it's coffee because it should be on every corner and cost a dollar. I would agree with that 100%. Yes. That is the most equity note to end a show on, Alex. So thank you for that. Some shout outs before we go. One is I hosted, shout out to myself. <laughs> shout out you. For hosting TC Live this week was super fun. It was with Class Dojo, Sam Chowdhury and Chris Farmer from Signal Fire. So that'll be on the TC Live podcast. And Alex, you did one as well. You can check it out. It was with Ariana Huffington and Mamoon Hamid from Kleiner. Yes, that's correct. That was a fun one. Yeah. Because uh, never do I talk to people who my spouse has heard of, but I'm like, I'm talking to Ariana Huffington. She goes, really? I was like, look, ha That's a big deal. <laughs> it's really, it rarely happens in this house as well. Same, same, same. And then always find us on Twitter at EquityPod. Anything else, everyone? Use the code equity to save money on TechCrunch Plus and make me look like I'm doing my, my real job when I'm doing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, we adore you all. We're back on Monday. Bye. Thank you. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters Natasha Mascarinas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.